Hey, turn, uh, stay there with me. Uh, we're, we're, uh, we're setting in uh, the Beatitudes as we launch into this series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we, lo- we looked at it last week and kind of did an intro. If you uh, were here with us, you remember uh, the Sermon on the Mount has uh, a lot of sections to it, but it starts with the Beatitudes. And uh, the Beatitudes is a really uh, familiar passage of Scripture as far as like people know what's in there, right? They've heard of it, could probably like say a couple of them, right? Like, yeah, yeah, blessed, like there's blessed if you're, if you're poor and meek. And if you're like me, that's what I, I just kind of remember. There's a few of them and, you know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, blessed if you're persecuted and, and, and that stuff. And so it's a really commonly known passage of scripture. I don't know that it's a super commonly understood and probably even less applied and, and embraced by God's people uh, to, to live out regularly. And so uh, I think oftentimes because of that, we sort of over-romanticize these as just some of these really nice sayings of Jesus, right? Sometimes we don't know what to do with Jesus' teaching, so we just kind of like, oh, that was nice when he said that, remember? Nobody understands, right? Uh, and then, or you just kind of throw them out there, and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's good to know, right? Like, you got to disconnect them from you personally. Like, well, it's good to know that, you know, those people out there that are poor in spirit, you know, or sad or persecuted, it's good to know that there's comfort for them, right? And we just kind of disconnect it. Or maybe, you know, if I ever get there someday, if I'm poor, you know, I, 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 there's good news, right? And so we kind of, we can romanticize and disconnect and just like make it into some, some poetry that doesn't really apply. But that's not what the Beatitudes are at all. If you were with us last week, we looked at um, that these is, this is not a list of things to do, right, in order to become a Christian, Right? This is not a list of things to do for self-help in order to get better. It's interesting because they are actually labeled as like, hey, if you want to be happy, this is, this is what it looks like to be happy. But it's not like do these things and you'll get into the kingdom. It's rather, hey, as a part of the kingdom, because God has done this work in making a kingdom and making us a part of that kingdom, this is what kingdom life looks like. And so uh, this is important. This, just, just in review, remember, hey, this is not a list of things to do. Um, the Beatitudes are, it does mean, like, it, they're, they're named that because Jesus is, is saying these blessings, right? Blessed are this. Blessed are these people. Blessed are this. And he goes through a list. Um, and that Beatitude is taken from the Latin word for blessedness or happiness. And so it is, it is sort of getting at that felt need of, like, everybody wants to be happy, right? But it's much deeper than what it might appear on the surface. And so uh, as we looked at last week, just quick reminders, these are a list of things that all Christians are supposed to be like, right? This is not just like, okay, well, some of you, it's not like spiritual gifts, right? Spiritual gifts, some of us are going to get these gifts, others are going to get these gifts, and we work together as a body. We don't collectively fulfill the Beatitudes. We individually all live out the Beatitudes as well. Like, so these are supposed to describe all of this, all of us, right? We are each supposed to embody and embrace and live out each of these things. Um, <clears throat> they're not referring to natural character traits, right? So this is not just talking about, hey, if you're a meek person by nature, or if you're sad or depressed per- person by nature, then blessed are you. Th- these are not talking about natural character traits. These are talking about supernatural spiritual forms. As we saw last week, uh, being poor in spirit is not about your finances. Right? It's not about your pocket, right? It's about your spirit. Right, and, and that's true of all of them, okay? Uh, and these are like some of the defining and essential um, things that set us apart from the world, right? That, that we should be a distinct people. If we're gonna be salt and light and we're gonna be a, a people that are a witness to Jesus, there should be a distinction 
about us. We should be different. And, and this is going to be some of the most defining pieces of that. This is what Jesus is saying. Hey, he, he's come. We, we, we looked at last week. This, the Sermon on the Mount is framed by these declarations that Jesus has come preaching the kingdom and displaying the power to bring in the kingdom. And right here, we have the teachings of what that means. What, what is the kingdom? So, um, Last week, we looked at being poor in spirit. Today, we have, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. A couple of commentators said that this could, this, as strangely as it sounds, um, could be translated, happy are those who are grieving. Happy are those who are sad, even. Right? And that sounds ridiculous, right? This is why we kind of dismiss these things. We're like, I don't, I don't know what you mean, Jesus. That was really pretty, Right? Right, but it, because it's 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 paradoxical and it doesn't really check out when we're just like logically walking through. So, what is mourning? What does Jesus mean by that? Well, just practically speaking, what does it mean to mourn? Mourning is is grief and sorrow that is caused by a profound loss. Okay, mourning is is grief and sorrow that's that's caused by a profound loss. Now, most commonly, we think about death. Right, we think about the, the grieving process that we have whenever we lose someone. Um, to death. But that's not simply what Jesus is talking about there. It, it certainly applies to that, right? It, it does apply to those who are mourning over death. If you have faith in Christ, you will be comforted, right? You, you have, we don't mourn, uh, Paul says in, in Thessalonians, we don't mourn like those who have no hope. We don't grieve like those who have no hope when we lose people to death, because we do have a hope, right, of resurrection. So it absolutely does apply, but it, to just leave it there would be far too much of a surface reading of the Beatitudes here, because contextually, that's actually not what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew. So it does apply, but it's not specifically what he's aiming at here. Just like the poverty of the Spirit's not about, the, you know, our, our finances, our physical wealth, it's about our spirit. This is true as well. It's not about material and, and even, you know, natural emotions. This is about our spirit. And so the, the loss that Jesus is talking about here, the thing that we are mourning and, and grieving and experiencing sorrow that Jesus is talking about here is actually not just death, but rather the effects, the impact, and the cost of sin. What Jesus is saying is those who mourn over sin will be comforted. Those who are grieved by sin will be comforted. When we mourn over sin, when we hate it, when we, when we hate it in our own life, when we hate it in the world, that's what we're going to see today, that we're called to grieve our own sin, right? And we're also called to grieve the, the sins of others and the world at large. And when we do that, that that's a sign to Jesus that, that we value what he values, right? That's sweet to him because that shows that, that we have had a new heart implanted in us, that we care about things that the world doesn't care about. The world laughs off, makes light of, even tries to normalize sin, right? We as Christians don't, we, we grieve it. We're, we, we weep over it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. So it, it's the mourning over our, the loss of our own personal holiness. The mourning, it's mourning over the loss of, of our collective state of the world, right? The brokenness of the world. It's, it's a mourning over sin and the result of sin. So what should that look like? What does that look like for us to be a people who mourn? Because I don't think it's real 
common in today's church. I don't think that we know how to balance these things, right? We, again, we've kind of shifted. We, wanted to, we want to make sure we, we have something that the world wants, right? We want to make sure that, that we're attractive to them. So sometimes we put on our plastic smiles, right? And we, we pretend that we're doing okay. And, and we invite, now, actually, probably not you, because we've just sort of made it our, our mission here at The Journey to just like beat the snot out of that, right? Like we're, every week, we're like, stop pretending. We're not here because we're perfect. This is a jacked up group of people, but we're redeemed through Jesus, okay? So it's okay to not be okay. It's not okay to stay there because Jesus wants to redeem us. So, so I think some of you have even been drawn to the journey because we've said, hey, we're not pretending here. We're not going to pretend here, okay? We, we want to acknowledge that we are sinners and we are in need, and then we want to bring that need to Jesus. But Christian culture at large, for years, I think, sort of shifted into this. I heard somebody say it the other day, um, I think it was Mark Fisher, he said, plastic smiles and sad eyes and nobody, like, nobody wants what you got, right? So sometimes we can just have this forced smile, but if people actually look within, there's, there's, it's not there. So how do we do this, right? What does this look like? Okay, so this is what we're going to look at today. We are meant to grieve our own sin, the sin of others and the world at large, and then we are meant to have hope because we will be comforted, okay? So let's look at it. First thing is that we are meant to mourn our own personal sin, Okay, we're meant to mourn our own personal sin. Okay, now this is both initially upon coming to the Lord and continually. Okay, we're meant to mourn our own sin both initially as we meet the Lord and continually. What I mean by that, so initially means that conversion can't happen if we just have this empty acknowledgement of sin, right? We talked about last week, the poverty of the spirit is first because it's sort of this um, entry into the kingdom of God. Like you don't get into the kingdom without first acknowledging that you have no right to be in the kingdom, right? And that's sort of the poverty of spirit. It's going, I got, I got nothing to offer before a holy God. <clears throat> so when it, when it comes to conversion, it can't just be this empty acknowledgement of, oh yeah, I'm a sinner. Like I know I'm a sinner. At, like a general confession, right? There's supposed to also be what contrition, what the Bible will call contrition. Like David, we looked at the, the passage from David last week in Psalm 51 where he says, hey, God doesn't want just empty sacrifices brought before him with this, yeah, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. What, what God does embrace is a broken and contrite heart. Right? So that before there is conversion, there must first be also contrition. Not like, so confession must be coupled with contrition. So the understanding that we have nothing to offer before our God is poor in spirit, but that, that quickly is followed by a grieving that we have nothing to offer, a grieving that we have messed up what God made, that we have ruined his perfect image that he made us in, that we have destroyed that because of our sin, and we acknowledge that and we grieve that. So Initially, it can't just be this empty confession of general sin. It must be a, a personal awareness, an awareness of our personal sin and our personal need for a Savior because we failed to hit the mark. That's what sin means, a missing of the mark. God has had a standard for us to live in that will lead to life. We have failed to live in it. It has led to death. And we mourn that, okay? So, so that's initially, and I think that's actually explained pretty well by, by looking at last week's beatitude. But what I think is not explained super well by that one is that it doesn't end there. We don't just repent once. But that this grieving, this process of repentance is something that happens continually throughout the life of a Christian. If you know the story of the Reformation, which we're about to celebrate at the end of the month, you know that it was... It was uh, 
kicked off by Martin Luther nailing his 95 Thesis to the door of the church at Wittenberg, right? And his first thesis was this, that the whole of the Christian life should be one of repentance. He says that when Jesus said that we should repent, he's talking about our whole life should be in a posture and in a regular rhythm of repentance. You may have heard somebody say, well, I, I repented 20 years ago, 30 years ago, right? 10 years ago. And it's not just, uh, as Sinclair Ferguson say, would say, done and dusted, right? It's something I did in the past. No, it's something that we continue to do. It's not done and dusted for Jesus, right? He continues to draw out sin in us so that we may repent, right? We've talk, we talk about it all the time. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. That happens when you meet Jesus for the first time, trust in him. And if you're here today, you can do that today. If you don't know Jesus, you can meet him today simply by declaring that you are a sinner in need of a savior and declaring that Jesus is that savior and saying, I, I want you to be my Lord, right? You can meet him today. And when you do that, you are justified and saved from the penalty of sin. But then from that moment until you are saved from the presence of sin, which is what is in glory, what we're going to be comforted by, and we'll get to that in just a minute, in between is what we call sanctification, meaning you're going to be made more and more and more and more like Jesus, okay? And so that requires repentance. It requires repentance. Not so that you'll be, not, you don't lose your salvation and you got to gain it again by praying, right? That's not what we're saying. Your salvation, your justification, your salvation is secure, but now as a part of that relationship, you continue to repent, okay? And, and that's sort of the repentance. It's, it's, it's sort of about restored fellowship. First John talks a lot about continued confession and repentance, and it's about fellowship, Right? Because we are in Christ, we don't pretend like we, have, we don't have any sin. First John says, that makes you a liar. Right? So if you're here and you're pretending like you don't have sin, you're a liar. But we also don't make light of our sin. Right? We don't just go, okay, you know what, it's no big deal. Everybody sins. Right? Jesus will forgive. How many of you have seen people going into really dark places, entering into really concerning conversations like divorce or addiction or adultery, and they're saying things like, yeah, but Jesus forgives, doesn't he? I know it's a sin. Have you heard somebody say something like that? I know this is wrong, but Jesus will forgive, won't he? Have you heard that? I've heard that, and, and, and that should make us mourn. That should make us grieve. Paul says in Romans, hey, just because sin, like, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Paul says, so do we just keep sinning? No, by no means, he says, by no means. We should grieve when there is sin. So when we are convicted about sin that is in our life, we don't take it lightly. We don't dismiss it. We don't kind of wash over it because, well, you know, I know I do this thing, but I do a lot of good things too, Right? We don't make light of it because of the good stuff we do. When we are convicted by sin in our life, we grieve it. Like we, are, we should be heartbroken because it is not like Jesus. And that's what we are called. That's what we are longing to be, right? When he says that we get a new heart and, and it says in Ezekiel that, that when, he, when he takes out that heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh, he's going to do something. That, and it's so cool. He says he's going to write his law on that new heart. So instead of it being this exterior thing on stone that, that the people had to you know, hold over them and be a continual reminder that they were not good enough, instead it's going to be placed inside of them and be a continual a reminder and a desire to pursue Jesus. That we can never be good enough, but he made a way, and now because he's made a way, we desire to be like him. And so we long for that. And where we see us missing the mark of that, we grieve it. We mourn it continually. 
Okay, we see this from Paul. Um, we, we see uh, Paul in Romans 7. It's a fascinating passage of scripture where he's talking about his own wrestle with sin. Right? And we see in verse 14 and 15 where he's wrestling with his sin. Does that mean he's lost his salvation? No. He's firmly planted in the Lord, and yet he's at war with his flesh. And it says, he, he says, he says, there's this, there's this battle within me. And that which I, which I don't want to do, I end up doing it. Can anybody relate? And he says, and that which I know I should do, I, I can't make myself do it. Anybody? And, 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 and it's like, but Paul's like, like, he doesn't just go, so you know what? Do the best I can. I'll see you in the glory. Paul's like, no, what a wretched man I am. He's grieving it. He's grieving his sin. What a wretched man, Paul says, that he is. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. James cries out for believers to see their sin and act accordingly. Sort of the crescendo of his, of his epistle in James 4. He, he tells the church, he says, hey, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Right? There's people in this church that, that have been double-minded. They, they claim Jesus on Sunday, but, but then they don't live like Jesus the rest of the week. Right? They claim Jesus for their, their ticket out of hell and into heaven, but they don't let Jesus into the rest of their life and their finances and their holiness and their marriage and their, their, their lustful thoughts. They don't let him in there. He says, hey, you need to draw near to Jesus and he'll come near to you, but you're going to need to be cleansed from your double-mindedness. And he says this, be wretched and mourn and weep. Church, there is far too long, been far too light of a view of sin in the Lord's church. Far too long have we made light of sin in the Lord's church, where we've tolerated it, made excuses for it, laughed it off, right? Some sins are really bad and it freaks us all out. Other sins we're all okay with, right? Like, I mean, just think about it. Like, do, like when someone steps off into adultery, most of us weep. Like we have that grieving feeling. But when someone is perpetually stepping off into gluttony, we kind of wave it off. It's no big deal, right? Or maybe just keep it closer to the analogy of adultery. And like when someone's continually lusting, or maybe even looking at porn, no big deal. I mean, how could you not in today's world, right? Like we start, we start to justify, we start to excuse, we start to tolerate, and, and it seeps into the church. And then, and then we don't really look that much different than the world. And this is what Jesus is saying is not okay. Like we should be a people that when we are confronted with our sin, we don't, we don't just dismiss it. We don't make an excuse for it. We weep. We weep. And that that weeping isn't just empty weeping. But as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, that that weeping should be a sorrow that leads to repentance. He says, for godly grief produces uh, repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief just produces death. Okay, so we as Christians, we're not just upset by our sin, but that upset feeling, that grief, that sorrow leads us to repent. If you don't know what repent means, it means to turn from your sin and turn toward Jesus. Okay, so we don't just grieve the consequences of it. This is not somebody who's just upset that they got caught. This is not somebody who's just upset at, the, at what they're losing because they got caught. This is a people who, at the sight and the smell of sin in their life, they, they weep. Why? Because 
We're in Jesus' kingdom now. This is not supposed to be a part of Jesus' kingdom. This is not who I'm made to be. I'm not living a life worthy of the gospel, as Paul would say elsewhere. And so I weep and I repent. I weep and I repent. One author that I read this week said, the quickest way to lose the wonder of the gospel is to lose sight of the depth of our sin. That when we actually see the depth of our sin, it actually exalts Jesus all the more. Does that mean we just need to wallow in our sin and think about it all the time? No. Right? For every one look we look at ourselves, we need to take 10 at Jesus. And that's the whole point of the Beatitudes. Like we, that's why I say it's not a list of things to do. Because we don't just like do, we don't, okay, I got to really become poor in spirit. I got to really learn to mourn. I got to really be meek. No, no, no. The answer is lift your eyes from yourself and your mess up to Jesus and these things will happen naturally. As you're looking at Jesus, you will become these things. You will become poor in spirit. You will become a person who mourns because when you see the brightness and the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus, you'll see more and more of your own sin. <clears throat> All right, secondly, we, so we mourn our sins personally, and we do that initially upon conversion. We also do that continually as a part of our sanctifying walk with Jesus throughout our life. And then secondly, we mourn the sins of others. Okay, now, that means we actually mourn them. We don't just want to know about them to gossip, okay? Right, the church has to do better at this, Right? Too often, gossip is spread in the name of prayer requests, and that's abominable to the Lord. Like, if we, we, we grieve the sins of others, if we don't indulge in the sins of others, okay? So this needs to be said really quickly. But we mourn the sins of others, and that, start, that, that has a couple layers to it, too. I would say that that is both personal relationships and then the world at large. So when it comes to personal relationships, you're gonna have people in your life, in your household, in your marriage, in your family, your kids, your people you love, your community group, your friends, that are gonna step into places that are dangerous. They're gonna step off the narrow path of following Jesus and they're gonna step into sin. What is your response in those moments? What is our response supposed to be? Well, it should be mourning, it should be grieving, right? That we, that we grieve. Paul says in Philippians 3.18, He's telling the story of some who have walked away. And listen to how he says it. He says, For many of whom I've told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. You see that? Paul is, is grieved by them turning and becoming enemies of the cross of Christ. He tells the, the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5 when, when some really wild sexual sin is going on, right? We preached through this about a year ago or so. Year ago or so. And, uh, and, and Paul says, I'll just read it to you. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. Okay, so Paul says, hey, I hear some stories about your church and this stuff is so freaky that even the world would like be like, whoa. The world would turn, like, would draw a line and the church is instead seeming to celebrate. He says, what is this? He says, for a man has his father's wife. Dude, sleep with his stepmom. Paul says, and you are arrogant? You're flipping about it? You're arrogant? You're just celebrating? You're, oh, yeah, cool. We're just fellowshipping with that, that couple. Nobody's called them out. Like, it's just, hey, we're all forgiven. This, this is the church of Corinth. Paul says, no, no, no. Ought you not rather mourn? Shouldn't you be weeping about that? Shouldn't you be grieving that? And then he says, let him who's done it be removed from among you, right? A confrontation. And if he doesn't repent, he's removed. We don't, tolerate, we don't tolerate sin in, in the Lord's church. We don't make light of it. We don't excuse it. 
We mourn it. We, we mourn it. So what do we do when, when people that we know and that we love are sinning? What do we do? Well, first of all, we need to care. Okay? There's, there's a lot of misunderstanding about judge not and we're not our brother. No, no, no. Like, you are your brother's keeper. You are supposed to care for your brother and sister. Hebrews tells, tells us that, that we should watch over one another unless uh, uh, we have a, a sinful and deceitful heart that becomes hardened and we fall away to sin. Like that we, should, we should watch over. We should call one another out. We should sing together. We should stay together so that that doesn't happen. And when it is happening, Jesus says in Matthew 18, really clearly, you, you, you pursue them. You pursue them in love. Right, so what do we do? First of all, we care. We have to care. Like that just can't, that can't, be, that can't be assumed. We have to care when people are in sin. Not in a gossipy way where we just want to know, right? But we have to care. And then we also grieve. Right, so we care, but we also grieve. Like it should matter to us. We don't dismiss it and make light of it. We, we care about them, so we grieve. We mourn. And then we should pray for them. Right? We, should, we should pray for them. Before you confront them, before you just write them off, you pray for them. You, you, you plead with the Lord to intervene for them and with them. Right? And then if you care, you, you will say something to them. You will say something. You'll confront them in love. Right? And this needs to be done well. Matthew 18 lays it out really easily, like how you should, not easily, really clearly. It's hard to do though, isn't it? It's hard to do. But if we care about people, then we will pray for them. We will grieve that they are in that sin and we will confront them, invite them to repentance, invite them back to faith. So we don't make light of it. We don't compromise on, in, you know, on these matters of sin in the name of tolerance, right? It gets hard in today's world, right? The world is, is telling people they can live this way and embody this lifestyle and do this thing. And if we, and if we say that that's wrong, it's unloving and we have, to, we have to reject that, but we have to wade really carefully into really messy waters where we're, we're loving people with both grace and truth. And it's hard, isn't it, church? It's hard because it's easier to just do grace and say, you know what? We don't have to talk about your sin. Just come on in. Or it's easier to just do truth and say, you're in sin, don't get close to us until you fix that. Jesus does both. He says, come on in here. Come on in here. I know you sin. I still want to have dinner with you. I still want to talk to you. Right? I still want to love you. But hey, we got to talk about your sin too, right? It took courage for him to go to the woman at the well, didn't it? If you don't know, it did, because it cost Jesus his reputation to go talk to people like that. He wasn't supposed to. He's a Jew. He's a, he's a rabbi. They don't talk to Samaritans. They don't talk. This woman is not just a Samaritan. She's a filthy woman. And everybody knows it. She knows it. That's why she's at the well at noon. Jesus doesn't just tolerate her presence. He seeks her out. And that cost him. He had to be brave to do that. And, and sometimes that's what we want to just celebrate in today's world. Oh, yeah, we're a church that we, we want to make sure that everybody knows they're accepted. We want to make sure we're close to those sinners, right? We want to be a friend of sinners. Well, guess what? It also took courage to Jesus for Jesus to say to her, hey, go call your husband. So he did both. He confronted her sin. But he did it with grace and truth. So we, ha we have to do that, but, it, but it's, it's difficult. So we don't compromise in the name of tolerance, but we keep loving fiercely, praying hard, and grieving. And we grieve and we confront and we love. We grieve and we confront and we love and we repeat. Amen? It's hard. It's hard. All right, so we grieve for the sins of others that we know personally, and then we also grieve for the world at large, 
right? That the reason for the brokenness in the world is sin, right? There's other ways to talk about it and politics and these theories and race, like critical theory and all these things, right? But we know that the bottom line, the reason the world is broken is because of sin. If we call it that, we see it. When we see the brokenness of the world, we understand that it's, it's coming from that, that the root of it is sin, right? Ezekiel, this fascinating passage in Ezekiel 9 where the Lord says to him, he says, pass through the city and through Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed in it. So this is God's city. It's supposed to be God's people. And Ezekiel is told, hey, go through the city and identify the people who are actually broken by the sin that's committed here. Because there's a lot of them that don't care. There's a lot of, supposed to be God's people and they're just participating in the sin with no grief, with no care in the world. They've assimilated into the world. They've let the world's religions assimilate into their deal and they don't seem bothered by it. He tells Ezekiel, go find the ones who are bothered by it. And that's who he's talking about will be comforted. The people who are bothered by it, right? You start to see how the, what, this is what Jesus is talking about. The people who are grieved by the state of Jerusalem. The people who are grieved by the state of the kingdom because they know it's not what God's supposed to be. Those people who are not okay with the status quo of just kind of doing church but not living it. God tells Ezekiel, you, you'll know them because when people are acting the way that they act and high-fiving one another in their sin and in arrogance, they're grieving and they're sighing and they're moaning over the abominations that are committed in this city. We, see, we saw in Daniel when we preached through it that Daniel weeps and, 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 and puts himself in sackcloth and ashes over the sins of his people, right? So it's this collective acknowledgement, not, just, not, not his sin. Daniel was standing firm, but when he sees the, 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 the brokenness of the Lord's kingdom, he weeps. So it says in Daniel 9, um, 8 through 11, O Lord, belongs to us open shame to our kings and to our princes and to our fathers because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness for we've rebelled against him. We've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God and by walking in his laws. All of Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that, have written, that were written have been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. This is Daniel saying, this is a mess, and it's a mess because we made it a mess. It's a mess because of sin. This is Daniel saying, you told us, Lord, you go back to, you, you go back to Deuteronomy. It's a really clear presentation from, from Moses of, hey, live life this way, and you'll have blessing. You don't live life this way, and they'll come a curse, right? Things are going to go badly. And Daniel is saying, this is what's happened. This is what happened. You told us, Lord, and we didn't do it. And now exactly what you said would happen is happening, and there's a curse. There's a brokenness to this world. So we, as a people, look at the brokenness of this world and we have the same heart go out. Like we don't just talk in terms of, you know, politics or government. Right? We see beyond that and understand that the brokenness is a result of sin and that the only true hope of the world is the gospel, salvation, right? So we see it, we, we grieve as such as we see the news. We grieve at the effects of sin. We don't make light of them. We don't dismiss them. We don't say it's not my problem. We grieve along with the Lord. When Jesus sees the crowds um, in, in Matthew 9, as he's approaching Jerusalem, it says that, that, he, that he weeps, right? He, he, he weeps. Why? Because they're like sheep without a shepherd. Another time he approaches them and he says, oh man, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I've wanted so often to, to bring you in like a hen does to her, her chick. Like, 
I wanted to bring you in and, 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 and restore you to what I made you to, but you refuse. And, and he's not, like, he doesn't move to just dismissiveness of them. Like, there's, there's weeping there. There's a weeping over the state of things. And it is this morning of our own personal sin and of corporate sin, the sins of others, when, when that sort of emotion rises up in you, when that grief and sorrow is in front of you because you love the Lord and you hate sin, you hate what it's done to you, you hate what it's doing to others, you hate what it's done to the world. When you're feeling that, that's when Jesus says, blessed are you. In fact, happy are you because you'll be comforted. So what do we do? We grieve our own sin. We grieve the sins of others, but we also, we don't stop there. We hope. We hope because we're going to be comforted. Amen. Like we have the only answer to this brokenness. We have the only solution and absolution that exists to the problem of sin. The rest of the world can grieve and fuss and grunt and fight and talking heads can spout off all kinds of theories about what's wrong. They don't have the answer, but we do. We do. We are the ones who have hope that when we get a, a confrontation with a holy God, we are, we are immediately confronted with this reality that he's holy, he's righteous, and we are not. But simultaneously, we're confronted with this reality that he is far more gracious and far more merciful than we ever dreamed he could be. Pastor Darren used to talk about that, right? Like, the, that the gospel, like, starts by realizing we're far more sinful, far more filthy, far more jacked up than we ever dreamed, right? But, and yet, the gospel is far better news, and his love is far more rich, and his, his forgiveness is far more far-reaching, his grace is far better than we could have ever imagined. And because of that, we hope and we will be comforted, amen? Like, this is, this is good news. Like, uh, Jesus, when he came in announcing the kingdom in Luke 4, he, he quoted a passage from Isaiah 61, uh, like, saying, this is what's happening. This is what the kingdom is coming. It says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, and he sent me to do what? To bind up the brokenhearted. That those who are broken and, and their hearts are shattered, he says, I've been sent here. I've been sent to bind them up been sent to bring healing. It, also in Isaiah, it, it was, we, we talk about it at Christmas time a lot in Advent, but one of the offices of the Messiah was going to be to be comforter or consolation, right? That when the Messiah came, he would bring comfort to his people, right? That that's part of what Jesus has come to do is to bring comfort to his people, and so we hope in that. We have the hope of the gospel. The only thing who provide, that provides forgiveness of sins personally and the only thing that provides a hope of redemption for this whole mess corporately, right? We hope and we groan. Romans 8 says the whole, the whole creation is groaning and longing for the day. Right? We've seen the first fruits. We've seen redemption. You've seen it in your life. If you're a Christian, the old way is dead. And the new way is coming to life. And you've seen victory over sin. You've seen that, that life coming to, to fruition. You've seen it in parts, right? And, and it's there. It's the kingdom is already, but it's not yet fully consummated. We see first fruits of it. We see foretaste of it. But one day we look ahead to when we'll see the full consummation of it. And that brings us hope. And we know that we will be comforted. That we will see the day when Jesus comes back 
No longer riding in humility, but riding on a, on a white horse full of his glory, and he will bring an end to all the sin, and he will do what? He says he'll make all things new, and he'll wipe every tear from every eye. That's what we long for. He'll make it all right. Every injustice will be set right. Every pain and every wound that has been dealt to his people will be healed. Every tear. Every tear. Church, every tear. Think about that. There's wounds in you that you don't even acknowledge, you don't think about, you don't let come out, you don't know how to deal with, you've never been able to grieve. Every tear. Every tear. That's our hope. That's good news, church. That is good news. So what do we do? How do we cultivate this sense of mourning in our, in our life? How do we become a people who are, who are mourning, who are blessed because we're mourning, because we're grieving sin? Well, first thing is the same as last week. We look at Jesus. We look at him. As I said earlier, it's not, okay, I, you know, let me, let me have head down. I'll figure out how to be a mourner, and then I'll go and serve Jesus. No, no, no. Get your, get your head up. You look at him. And you'll be transformed. 2 Corinthians 3.18, one of my favorite passages. You hear me quote it all the time, but it says this. And we all, with an unveiled face, and that is a theologically profound statement, that we get to, with unveiled face, behold the glory of God. If you remember Moses, he couldn't fully see the glory, right? He had to be hidden. And when he would come down from the mountain, he would still be glowing from being in the presence of the Lord. It's awesome stories, right? We know the, the, the Holy of Holies in the temple in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, right? But we see it, it, it's divided off by this curtain, right? Only the high priest could go in after an extreme ceremony and only once a year because that's where God's presence dwelt. But when Jesus breathed his last on the cross, the whole earth shook, darkness came, and that curtain was torn from top to bottom. Why? So that you and I could be in the presence of God. So he says, all of us with unveiled face now, Jesus has unveiled our face and we get to behold him, the glory of the Lord. And as a result of that, we are being transformed into the same image of that Lord that we're beholding. And it goes from one degree of glory to another. One degree of glory to another. One degree to another. We mourn, we grieve, we repent, and we grow. We mourn, we grieve, we repent, we grow. And we repeat, repeat until he comes back and makes it all right in the twinkling of an eye. This long process that's been one degree of glory after another that we've been laboring. And how many of you are frustrated at your sin, that it still exists? You're frustrated at the slowness of your sanctification. You're frustrated that you've not gotten over this yet. Anybody? It's one degree of glory. We, we keep worshiping Jesus. We keep looking at him. We keep repenting. We keep turning from but one day, one day in a twinkling of an eye, it'll all be done. It'll all be made right and we'll be made like him. We will see him and we'll be made like him. Amen, church. This is our hope. Right, if we do that, if we... So we just keep looking at Jesus and then we become a people of repentance, right? If we do that, we will naturally be led to repent. If we see Jesus, we will naturally be led to repent. So, right? So um, we should all agree that this posture of mourning hasn't been a defining characteristic of, of God's people in America over the last couple of decades, but it should be, right? So we become a people who take a posture of repentance. We don't take our sin lightly. That means we're going to have to stop pretending. I think that has a lot to do with why the church isn't a mourning church because we felt like we had to pretend like we're okay so that people want what we got. No, what people want is authenticity. People want to know that we also struggle, but we've found a hope beyond that struggle. People want to know that, right? So we stop pretending. We start living in accordance with the gospel, which means we are a people who recognize our brokenness. We weep over it and we bring it to Jesus. And we get up forgiven. We get up with a hope that is in him. Amen? 
And we go out and that becomes attractive to the world. Okay? So we stop pretending. Stop putting on our plastic smiles. Stop acting like everything's okay. Stop refusing to talk to anybody, men. Stop refusing to talk to anybody. Stop acting like you're okay. Stop acting like you got this. You need to speak up. Women, you need to get deep. Don't just talk about the surface easy things. You need to be honest, right? Part of this is going to happen to happen in community. I, I referenced it earlier. First John talks about, hey, we are sinning still. We're struggling. We're battling against it. What do we do? We confess to God. He's faithful and just to forgive us, but we confess to one another and we are healed, right? We confess to one another, right? We do this in community. That's why community matters. We have to have people that know us and not just like, Know what we like to eat and see us on Sunday nights. Like, know us. Like, know our stuff. Know our struggles. Know our junk. Know how to pray for us. Know how to call us out. And we confess. And we're healed. And we grow. Blessed are those who mourn, who don't make light of their sin, who grieve over it, for they will be comforted. Jesus is the comforter. in a sense, to pretend and hold on to your sin and write it off or dismiss it or refuse to confess it is to refuse his comfort. Some of you are in so deep that you don't see how you could possibly bring it to light without destroying your life. Well, there's a flippant saying, you know, it gets said flippantly, but the truth will set you free. Like, you actually have to step into that. You actually have to step in and own your sin and, and then let Jesus take it from you. But the good news is you have to own it, right? But you don't have to, you have to keep it because you can bring it to him and he'll take it from you. He says, you're, you're weary, you're burdened, you're heavy laden. Come, come to me. Give me what you got and I'll give you what I got. And what he has is rest. What he has is fulfillment. What he has is peace. Let's pray. God, help us to do that. Help us to actually do that and live that out. We need your help. We don't, we don't naturally grieve over sin. Lord, we naturally make excuses for it. We naturally get comfortable with it. We naturally enjoy it. We naturally struggle with it. So we need your help. Father, and I can't manufacture this, but Lord, if you come and reveal yourself so powerfully, we will all instantly understand what it means to be poor in spirit and to mourn. So we ask that you would do that as we sing this song, as we come to your altar, Lord, would you do that? Would you show up? Would your spirit be here? Have your way among us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.